If you work with virtual machines and or Kubernetes, and if you have some questions about how you can make it work better for your organization, or what the current best practices are, or how to understand it, well, you've come to the right place. This is the Cloud Tweaks podcast, where we look at developments and stories dealing with cloud, cybersecurity, and other areas of business tech. And I'm your host, Steve Prentice. Today, I have as my guest, David Dimko, who is the Director of Engineering for Cloud Native Development at Vulture.com. That's spelled V-U-L-T-R.com, which has 25 data centers around the world and which provides public cloud, storage, and single-tenant bare metal. In our last Cloud Tweaks episode, we talked with Ryan Pollock from Vulture about how big tech clouds have basically left behind small and medium-sized businesses and individual developers in the pursuit of mega, multi-million dollar deals. So today we get a chance to take a deep dive exploring how containers and Kubernetes can help an organization manage its data more dynamically, and of course, how the resources and expertise from Vulture might be able to help. So David, thank you for joining me here on the Cloud Tweaks podcast. Hey, Steve, thanks for having me. Though we're here to talk about technology, it's always so interesting to learn something about the people like yourself who made these solutions so available and usable. So let's start with you. As Director of Engineering for Cloud Native Development, what do you work on at Vulture and and how did your professional path bring you here? So currently at Vulture, there are a couple things that I I work on. Primarily, it's the Vulture Kubernetes engine, which was uh, recently went GA. But in addition to that, it's... uh, our open source, which is on GitHub, um, our managed load balancer offering, and our API v2. Um, and the reason there's such like a wide scope, there's a lot of these things are intertwined, like the open source uh, libraries and tools kind of are required for some of the Kubernetes integrations we have. So it seems like a lot, but there's a lot of like this integration be- between these things. Before coming to Vulture, I worked at a few places, but the most notable one was Vonage, the old VoIP company with the terrible commercials from the early 2000s that people might remember. While I was there, that's where I kind of got exposed to kind of like a cloud native Kubernetes microservice design. So when I came there, we had a monolithic type of application and I was kind of tasked to break up the monolith and move it to this new thing called Kubernetes. And that was a very interesting experience, which was kind of like heads in, kind of figuring out all these problems. That was also at a time where our cloud provider at Vonage didn't have a managed Kubernetes engine. So we did a lot of things, hacky things by hand to kind of get there. So. Um, most A lot of my background prior to that was API development and distributed computing. So it all kind of comes full circle with kind of what I do now. Oh, I remember Vonage, yep. Yeah. It's cool that this experience dropped you into the deep end of the pool, breaking up the monolith and getting into containers and specifically Kubernetes. I found this to be one of those areas of business that can be straightforward, but for a lot of people it remains wrapped in some mystery, the way that cloud once was and maybe still is. So where do you start? If you can give me a, give me a thumbnail description of Kubernetes for those in our audience who might not be directly sure what it is. Yeah, so I, I think most developers are are comfortable with you know instances or virtual machines and deploying their workloads on, on these type of servers that they deploy on their cloud, cloud providers. In the recent years, you've seen a transition to containers. Um, you know, it's things like Docker and, and the whole containerization workload. While that's good, it has a lot of difficulties in how do you orchestrate these containers? Because on a VM, you can kind of deploy your application and configure it, and you know it sits on that VM. But 
with a container, you're now deploying this prepackaged application and it kind of sits there and you now need to do all this other DevOps type of stuff to, to get it working. So what Kubernetes does is it basically, it's an orchestrator which allows you to take your containerized workloads and define them through, through manifests and all these other things on how you want them to behave. So for example, if you want, let's say you have a, a WordPress site and you want three instances of them running, um, you would basically define a manifest and say, this is my container. I want three of them running. Um, and you tell Kubernetes and Kubernetes will then deploy those containerized workloads and keep an eye on them. So some of the benefits you get out of that would be Kubernetes will always make sure that you wanted three instances of that container. It will always keep three of those instances running. So it removes a lot of this manual type of work that you would do. Cause you know, let's say if we were on VMs, you would have to deploy three VMs and then kind of maintain them to make sure they're always running. But with the containerized workloads in Kubernetes, you kind of get some of those features out of the box from Kubernetes itself. It's very interesting how much WordPress gets trotted out into case studies like this. It still seems to be such a pervasive part of the cloud community. But it also has other talents, of course, doesn't it? Especially, as you were saying before, with Vonage, where an organization may be looking to break apart its monolithic legacy systems. It's a bit agnostic. You can use it as something as straightforward as WordPress, where you kind of define it where here's my WordPress application, I want it to be backed by this block storage, and I want this load balancer to kind of ingress traffic to it. But you'll see other people do more complex things where they have like a lot of microservices. So for example, people come from these monolithic applications where you have a billing component, you have a front-end component and sales component. What people are kind of doing now is they're breaking apart those components into smaller microservices and deploying them onto Kubernetes. And you see a lot of other things such as machine learning and AI. Kubernetes basically allows you the opportunity to take your containerized workloads and break them up any way you want. So you can have your WordPress site on a Kubernetes cluster alongside your microservices. It, they don't really affect each other. And the other thing that Kubernetes kind of does is the way it views your compute it looks at all of your deployed instances as your worker nodes and node pools, which are just your VMs, as a single compute. So if you have three instances that have a total of six cores and eight gigs, for example, Kubernetes sees that as the available compute to the cluster. So you don't really have to think about, you know, oh, I need to add more resources or more whatever. Kubernetes kind of treats it as a single logical compute block, and then it allows you to segregate and break it up as you see fit. So it works kind of like a load balancer. But I guess its main benefit, as you just said, is the fact that it takes care of managing the resources and therefore maybe takes a load off a human operator as well. So tell me a little bit about Vulture, the Vulture Kubernetes engine. What will this do for us? The Vulture Kubernetes engine is Kubernetes that obviously runs on Vulture, but to kind of take a step back, what, what the ma these managed Kubernetes engines do is they abstract some of the heartache that, you, that a user might get running Kubernetes on their own. While Kubernetes gives you a lot out of the box, it, it, there's no doubt that it is a complex system and it does take uh, sometimes a village to kind of maintain it if you're running it on your own. With the Vulture Kubernetes engine, we remove a lot of that heartache for you. So 
when you're looking at a Kubernetes setup, you have a control plane, which has a lot of the core components. And those are then communicate to your worker nodes, which are just regular VMs that are kind of running specific, uh, your, your containerized workloads. We maintain the control plane for you. And we you do not have access to it. And, and it kind of, it allows developers not to worry about it. So if you're looking to use Kubernetes and you just want to deploy your workloads, you don't want to worry about setting up the control plane or provisioning worker nodes or any type of like that DevOps type of day two operation, the Vulture Kubernetes engine accomplishes that for you. It abstracts a lot of the headache and it lets developers focus on what they want to focus on, which is developing applications instead of maintaining the underlying infrastructure. So yeah, to summarize, the Vulture Kubernetes engine automates and maintains all components of a Kubernetes cluster. What's left up to the user is then writing their application manifest and making sure that whatever they're configuring on Kubernetes is accurate, but the underlying infrastructure is maintained by us through and through. That sounds very attractive and practical, especially layered on top of Kubernetes to simplify the process and do what any great solution should do, I guess, uh, whether mechanical or human. That's to remove some of the pain points or the heartache, as you so wonderfully put it. But I can imagine there would be some who might push back against yet another as a service provider, adding more to their operating costs, especially when Kubernetes is open source and free. Why should they turn to a managed service like Vulture? What's, what's so hard about self-hosting K8's clusters? There's just a lot of moving pieces and you don't really consider them. For example, just to briefly get a bit technical on the control plane, you have at a, at a basic level, you have the API server, you have a, which handles all communication. That's kind of your heart of the whole system or the brain rather. Then you have the controller manager, which handles basic communication and a few other things. Then you have the scheduler, which will then figure out which worker nodes you want to deploy your work to. And then you have etcd, which is your key key value store of your state. So there's a lot of moving pieces on the control plane itself. Then you have the worker nodes, which have the kubelet, which handles communication to the API server to kind of figure out what it needs to do. And you have the kube proxy, which handles a lot of IP tables and a few other things under the hood. So right off the bat, those these are all separate components. They're all running individual of one another, but they're communicating through API calls and other resources there. Now, with that, you have to maintain all that. And that's a lot a lot of upkeep. And like you have to take regular backups of etcd because if etcd was to fail, that's your persistent state of your cluster. And if that goes, you're going to have a lot of headache. And also just adding worker nodes. If you want to add a worker node, you have to deploy the instance, install kubelet, kubeproxy, configure it to the API server. There's also the question of how are you going to handle secure communication between the control plane components and the worker nodes, you know, you, you, you will need like X509 certs if you want HTTP communication between them. That does sound like a lot of work for people to take on. You can, you totally can. And some people like that full control. Personally, it, it's an interesting problem because like I've always used, I've used it both where I've used Kubernetes kind of maintaining it as a developer and then used it as a managed service. And the managed service removes a lot of that headache. Like I guess a lot of developers, we, with, when you look at serverless and a lot of these up and coming technologies, people don't want to worry about the underlying infrastructure maintenance. They just want something that's highly available up all the time and, you know, 
for us or for VKE, when a user wants to add more worker nodes, it's just a single API call or increasing the worker node amount. And we automate that. They don't have to worry about it. It pops up on their cluster a few minutes later. So it's that ease of mind and kind of not worrying about, you know, oh man, do we, did we back up at CD? Like we back up at CD for you. Um, so if there ever is an issue, we can recover it. So like we do a lot of that burden, I would say, of what Kubernetes kind of comes with. So let's take a moment to dig down into how you would create and connect to a cluster. How would you help me as a customer with that? If you were doing it by hand, you would have to deploy your a specific, like you would have to deploy a couple of VMs, right? You would have to deploy one VM, which would be your control plane, then install all those components, set up your X509 certs, make sure communication is working. Then you would have to set up your worker nodes, set up private networking so that you don't have to, but private if you want private networking between these components. On the UI, you go to my.vulture.com, you go to the Kubernetes tab, and you all you do is you pick which version of Kubernetes you want, which region you want it deployed in, and how many node pools and worker nodes do you want? And you kind of define all that and you hit deploy, and a few minutes later you have a fully functioning Kubernetes cluster. You don't have to know how Kubernetes works under the hood. You, to be honest, you don't even have to care at that point. You can just say, I, here's my Kubernetes cluster, um, and it shows up a few minutes later, and it, it works. On the API, it's the same thing. You're kind of just saying, I want this cluster in this region with this plan of worker node, and you click deploy. And then communication to it, like once it's up and running, you, we give you the kubeconfig, which is like a YAML file, which kind of defines what role you have and how to connect to it. So we give you a full admin permission cube config. So you pull that down and then you can use a CLI tool called kubectl or kubectl, kind of a debate which way you say it. Um, but yeah, you pull that down and then you can have full access to your cluster. And it's, I guess the way to kind of put it is like, it's kind of like a car from the factory. You kind of just pick what features you want, what color you want, and then you kind of buy it. You're not at the factory building the car yourself. Some people might want to, but I think majority of people just say, these are the specs that I want. Let me have it. Um, so it's kind of akin to that a bit. That's a great analogy. It's like that experience of going to a car manufacturer website and building your own car online. Very, very exciting. Especially when you know the car assembly itself is in the hands of professionals. So just like a car, sooner or later we have to ask what all this is going to cost. So what would the Vulture Kubernetes engine represent as an investment for a company? If you're looking at VKE, the lowest cost cluster that you could deploy is $10, which I think is fantastic. Because if you compare it to the larger cloud providers, they have a... I don't even know what to call it, but I guess it's just like a management fee. It's $70 a month for no worker nodes for just, just to deploy the thing, just to look at it on your on, on your dashboard. But Vulture, it's a minimum $10 uh, deployment. And that $10 deployment is because you need to have at least one worker node deployed to your cluster. So technically, we don't charge you for the control plane. You're just paying for the resources you use. So if you deploy a three-node Kubernetes cluster, you're paying for those three nodes. If you deploy block storage or load balancers, you're only ever being charged for the resources that you're using. But the control plane is entirely free. We, we maintain the cluster for you, basically free of charge, I guess, if you really want to boil it down. And that that's I, I think that's interesting because there is a steep learning curve to Kubernetes. And having a $10 entry point is 
is is a really great entry because if you if you want to learn Kubernetes, you want to mess around with it. A ten dollar investment a month is is great because you have a fully functioning Kubernetes cluster that you can interact with, work with, and you're not paying an arm and a leg such as like a seventy dollar um, control plane management fee, which you know is is a bit high for most people. So I think it's great because with all the regions that VKE is in and at such a low entry point, I feel that like it kind of opens the path for people who wanted to learn it to learn it. And as for larger companies, it's also great because they're only paying for the resources that they need to worry about. And they don't also have to have like a full team of DevOps or SAs that need to maintain this thing. They can just have the developers focusing on the underlying applications that they're building. And that's, that's about it. That last point is a very poignant one since it's so often overlooked. It is, it's, it's one thing to get a new technology, but quite another thing to train your people on how to use it. David, you have given us quite an enjoyable trip through the world of Kubernetes today, as well as the way that the Vulture Kubernetes engine can make the process so much clearer and worry-free. So as we conclude here, what advice would you like to share with our listeners? I would encourage anybody and everyone to check out our Vulture Kubernetes engine and give it a go. If you're interested in learning Kubernetes, I think it's a great entry point because there's nothing you can break. And if you break, you just deploy another one. And then for larger companies, I think it really removes the headache and the hassle of keeping up a Kubernetes cluster, which can sometimes take a village, in my opinion. So I think it's, I would definitely recommend everyone check it out for sure. David, thank you. Every time I talk to a well-versed expert like yourself, I learn something new and valuable, and you clearly have the background and expertise to oversee the development of the Vulture Kubernetes engine, and even more importantly, the well-being of your customers. So thank you. Thank you very much for bringing the world of Kubernetes to the Cloud Tweaks podcast today. Thanks for having me, Steve. It was uh, great chatting with you today. Once again, that is David Dimko, Director of Engineering for Cloud Native Development at Vulture. You can find out more about Vulture and its range of services by going to vulture.com. Once again, that's V-U-L-T-R.com. And you might also want to check out our previous episode, number 16, entitled Bigger is Not Always Better, in which I talk with Ryan Pollock, Vice President of Product Marketing and Developer Relationships for Vulture.com, about how the big tech clouds have basically left behind the small and medium-sized businesses and individual developers in the pursuit of big dollar deals. Just like this episode, some really great food for thought about how to partner up in the challenging universe of VMs, cloud, containers, and data management. And as for us, you can also check us out at cloudtweaks.com and follow us on Twitter at cloudtweaks. If your company is looking for some great exposure to thousands of decision makers in the IT, cloud, and related industries worldwide, please do get in touch. We can craft a campaign that will help you get noticed through our website, social media, and newsletter channels, all of which enjoy substantial readership. Until next time, I'm Steve Prentice. Stay safe, and thanks for listening.